Scripture passage this evening is Luke chapter 24, verses 44 through 49. We're going to read verses 36 through 51. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. As far as the reading of God's holy word, may he bless it to his people. We're also going to be looking at Lord's Day 12 in the Heidelberg Catechism. It can be found in the back of your green Psalter hymnals on page 19. We can read the answers together. Why is he called Christ, meaning anointed? Because he has been ordained by God the Father and has been anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher who perfectly reveals to us the secret counsel and will of God for our deliverance, our only high priest who has set us free by the one sacrifice of his body and who continually pleads our cause with the Father and our eternal King who governs us by his word and spirit and who guards us and keeps us in the freedom he has won for us. But why are you called a Christian? Because by faith I am a member of Christ, and so I share in his anointing. I am anointed to confess his name, to present myself to him as a living sacrifice of thanks, to strive with a good conscience against sin and the devil in this life, and afterward to reign with Christ over all creation, for all eternity. That's the teaching of the catechism. If you want to uh, grab your um, pew Bibles, and I want to do a little bit of an object lesson right now, I'd like you to turn to the blank page between Malachi and Matthew. The blank page between Malachi and Matthew Well, it's not necessarily blank. It says the New Testament. And I want you to sort of hold your hand there. 
And then I want you to rip out the New Testament. No, don't do that to the Pew Bibles. But I want you to imagine, though, that all you had was the Old Testament. I want you to imagine with me that you'd never heard of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Never heard of Romans or 1st or 2nd Corinthians or any of the other epistles like Ephesians, Galatians, Colossians. Never heard of the book of Hebrews or Revelation. You don't have them. But you do have Genesis to Malachi. And I also want you to imagine something else for me. And maybe this is a little bit easier for you because, well, it's pretty much all our experience. All you've got is the Old Testament, except you're not a Jew. You're a Gentile who has the Jewish scriptures. But you're not sure if they are for you. They've always belonged to the Jewish people, the people of Israel. The scrolls have been placed up in the temple in Jerusalem, preserved throughout the generations. But do they belong to you? You're not sure where your place is in all this. If Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, is even for you. And that's what I want us to think of when we hear of Theophilus. Now, the gospel of Luke is an interesting gospel because it's one of the only gospels, if not the only gospel, where we have an explicit reference to the audience. The beginning of the gospel of Luke starts with this introduction. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully invested everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Theophilus is a Greek name. It means friend of God. And Theophilus is who Luke is writing to. And Luke tells us that the reason why he writes the gospel of Luke to Theophilus is for this. That you may have certainty. Certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So the question for us as we read the Gospel of Luke and as we look at the various passages are or is this. How exactly is this passage bringing certainty? How is this passage bringing certainty to a Greek believer and the Jewish Messiah, Jesus? How is this passage bringing certainty to us? And that's what we have this evening in a passage that brings certainty concerning the message of Christ and the mission of Christ. But we need to know the scene, don't we? This passage comes after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's already appeared to some believers on the road to Emmaus. He's already appeared to some women earlier. And there's a buzz about 
Is Jesus really alive? Is Jesus really around? And eventually, this occurs that they're gathered around the table and Jesus appears in the midst of them. And he tells them, peace be with you. But there's this theme in the Gospel of Luke, a constant expression of disbelief. The women come back from the empty tomb and they say they've seen Jesus and the disciples receive this as just a fanciful story. They can't imagine that this is the case. The believers on the road to Emmaus are expressing that they thought Jesus was this coming Messiah, that he was going to be the one to restore Israel, but, you know, it happens to not be the case. And Jesus, although they don't know it's him, rebukes them for their hardness of heart, saying, did you not believe that this had to happen? And here, as Jesus appears among them, we read of this consistent theme of unbelief. He says, why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your minds? Look, I'm right here. Touch me. See me. I'm not a ghost. And verse 41, why they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement. It's too good to believe. He asked them, you got something to eat? The idea here is that this is not a, a phantom. This is not a ghost. This is not a spirit. Do spirits have flesh and bone? Do spirits hunger and eat? And that's when Jesus then now turns to our passage this morning. And I think our passage this morning presents to us this concerning our certainty. That salvation comes to us just as it came to Theophilus by Christ's message and through Christ's mission. By Christ's message and through Christ's mission. So the two points are going to be the message and the mission. And as we look at those two points, we'll try to point out to you where I see this passage being a good connection to Lord's Day 12 concerning Christ's offices of prophet, priest, and king, and our office of believer, how we live out the office of believer. So let's look here at this first point. The message of Christ covers verses 44 through verse 46. Verse 44, Jesus says this. This is what I told you while I was still with you. So what we could say about this is that here at the end of the gospel of Luke, there's a looking back. When Jesus started his mission, when he started his work, his work of ministry in the gospel of Luke, he began it in his hometown of Nazareth, opening up the scroll of Isaiah and proclaiming from the scroll of Isaiah that this prophecy is fulfilled right now, today, in your presence. 
And so the concept is the beginning of Christ's work of ministry and the end is all caught up in the fulfillment of Scripture. This is what I told you while I was still with you. In fact, in Luke chapter 9, verse 22, following Peter's confession of Christ as the Messiah, Jesus said, the Son of Man is going to suffer and be cast into the hand of the chief prophets and so on and so forth, and then on the third day rise again. So what Jesus is saying is, what happened When everything that you've just been witness of with the resurrection, with the death, this was all meant to happen. It was all meant to happen. It's what I told you while I was still with you. Everything, he says, must be fulfilled. Must be fulfilled. This phrase, must be fulfilled, is so common in the Gospel of Luke that it's given a really cool name. It's called the divine day. And that's because the word here in Greek is day. And the purpose, the reason why it's given this name, the divine day, is because all throughout the Gospel of Luke, For the purpose of certainty, for Theophilus' certainty, for our certainty, he keeps saying that what is occurring in the life of Jesus Christ, in the teaching of Jesus Christ, in the death of Jesus Christ, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is what was promised, is what was proclaimed to happen by God himself. It must be fulfilled. It's part of God's divine decree. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. This three-part breakdown here is significant. It's the only time in the Gospels where this is used, and it stands for the entire Old Testament. Remember the introduction I gave, right? I said, all you got is Genesis to Malachi. Those are your scriptures, right? And you're not a Jew. These scriptures, for the longest time, have not really belonged to you. They belong to the Jewish people. They're about the Jewish people's God, their beliefs, the story of their faithful people, right? Of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These are all Jews. These are all part of their heritage. How do you know if this belongs to you? And how do you know that this points to Jesus? Well, here we see Jesus say that everything written about me and all of the Old Testament, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, which stood for the three parts of the Old Testament, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim, the Torah, the law, the prophets, and the writings, the entire Old Testament speaks of Jesus Christ speaks of the coming Messiah. 
speaks of the suffering servant, speaks of the mediator, speaks of the root of Jesse, speaks of Jesus Christ to come. It all points to him. And this is important for us to understand because this phrase, this concept of the scriptures, right, is something that we can read of often even in the New Testament. And I want to give us a, a really simple example so that we can grasp the reality of this, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is breaking down the gospel to the church in Corinth. He's saying this is what the gospel is. And it's a very well-known passage, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In fact, in the Nicene Creed that we confess tonight, wording from this very passage is taken and almost directly, word for word, put in the Nicene Creed. In Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, he says, For what I received I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, what? According to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, what? According to the scriptures. Now, what we often don't do when we read that is think that what Paul is actually speaking of is Genesis to Malachi. He's not talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He's not talking about the book of Romans. He's not talking about the book of Hebrews or Revelation or any of those. Because when Paul wrote this to the church in Corinth, those did not exist yet. The idea or the concept of the New Testament wasn't there yet. What Paul is talking about when he says that Christ died according to the scriptures and Christ was raised according to the scriptures is the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. The Old Testament speaks of the suffering and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is important for us to understand because, as I said earlier, Luke is writing to Theophilus so that he may have certainty about what he was taught. And what Theophilus needs to know and needs to understand is that it's not an accident that you and I have come to have faith in Jesus Christ. That it's part of the plan, part of what must be fulfilled is that we, non-Jewish people, Gentiles, would come to know the Christ of Scripture, all of Scripture, Genesis to Malachi, and yes, Matthew to Revelation. And this is what, this is what the catechism is talking about when it says that Christ is our chief prophet and teacher who perfectly reveals to us the secret counsel and will of God for our deliverance. That all of scripture is about Jesus. That it's not wrong for us to look at the Old Testament and say, this is about Jesus. Jesus is being spoken of here. Jesus is being revealed here. Jesus is being pointed to. But there's something else, isn't there? If that's the case, if all the Old Testament scriptures are about Jesus, then why is it that so many Jews... Don't believe. They don't see it. The Jews know their Torah better than any Christian, mostly, in most cases, 
Some of the best commentaries that you can read on the Old Testament are written by Jews, rabbis. They've studied that word. They've looked at it for centuries, thousands of years. And why do they not see Jesus there? And that's why it continues. Verse 45, we read, Then he, that is Jesus, opened their minds so they could understand the Scriptures. See, there is the problem of unbelief. The problem of unbelief is that we're blinded. We're blinded to the true purpose of the Scriptures. We're blinded to all of Scripture being about the Messiah, about Jesus, by our sin, by our sinfulness, by our cold hearts. If you don't believe me, then believe what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul writes these words. Even if our gospel is veiled, that is covered, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. If Luke is writing to this Gentile believer who needs to be told that the Old Testament scriptures belong to you, Theophilus, they belong to us just as much as they belong to the Jew, he needs to answer the question, why is it that so many Jews are not believing in Jesus? It's the same question Paul is wrestling with in Romans chapter 9 through Romans chapter 11. And the question that we see here is that in order to understand that Jesus is the revelation of all of Scripture from Genesis to Malachi, we must have our minds opened. He is the one who chiefly reveals to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our deliverance. And here, as he's gathered with his disciples, Jesus opens their minds so they can understand the Scriptures and see how he was there all along, how the gospel was there all along. The Emmaus disciples had their eyes opened, and these disciples have their minds open. Christ to the disciples on Emmaus pointed to them in the law of Moses and the prophets, all concerning himself. And here Christ does the same thing for these disciples. He wants them to get this, to understand this, that the scriptures are chiefly about him. And this is the only time when it's okay for us to say, it's all about me. It's when Jesus is saying it about the scriptures. That's verse 45. Verse 46, though, concerning the message. It starts off with this phrase. He told them, this is what is written. This is what is written. But what I want us to think of, because this Greek phrase can be translated the same way, is in this way. So Jesus has now said all of Scripture is about him, right? All the Old Testament is about him. And now he's about to tell us how it's about him. 
He says, Scripture is written in this way. All of Scripture, all of the Old Testament is written in this way. And he gives what I like to call the thesis statement of the Old Testament. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. This is the thesis statement of divine revelation. It's the humiliation and exaltation of Jesus Christ. And so when we look at the Old Testament and we see the humiliation of Israel and the exaltation of Israel being put into slavery in Egypt and being brought out of slavery and redemption, we see Christ's humiliation and exaltation. And picture after picture after picture can point to this, the thesis statement of the Old Testament is the suffering and the subsequent, subsequent glories of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what Peter says in his first letter when he says in 1 Peter chapter 1 concerning the revelation that he has been given, that he is telling to the people he's writing to, 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 10 through 11, he said, concerning this salvation... The salvation that these people have received, that we have received, that we've all received. The prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. What's Peter saying here? He's saying that in the Old Testament, the prophets were searching and inquiring about the coming of Christ. Not only that, but it said the spirit of Christ in them. So if there's a reason that Jesus can look at the Old Testament and say that it's all about him from Genesis to Malachi, and it's all about his suffering and his resurrection, here's the reason why he can say it's all about me, because he wrote it. Because he wrote it. Through the Holy Spirit's inspiration, the spirit of Christ in the prophets, in the writers of the Old Testament, pointing to Christ. In this way, Scripture is written, the Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. So that's the message of Christ, right? What about the mission? See, because all that, that's fine and dandy, but, but Luke, you got to help me. you got to help me, Theophilus, understand how this Jewish Messiah with these Jewish scriptures came to be a, a, a presentation, came to be a proclamation of salvation to me, a Greek, a Gentile, a non-Jew. How is that salvation offered to me? How is he my Messiah? How is he my anointed? How is he my Christ, as Lord's Day 12 says? And that's how the message continues. Jesus says, in this way, Scripture is written. That not only does the Old Testament point to the suffering and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but it also points... To the mission of God. Christ continues. In this way scripture is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. 
beginning at Jerusalem. So what I want us to see here is that up to this point, Christ has spoken of what has already happened. And now he's talking about the future. What will happen? What will happen? And this is what he says. That the message of Christ about his death and resurrection, the message that is the core, that is the central key factor to all the Old Testament scriptures, Genesis to Malachi, is now going to be proclaimed. To all nations. To all nations. The message of repentance and forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus is going to be proclaimed. Repentance and forgiveness of sins preached in Jesus' name is the model for apostolic preaching. And if you remember, Luke not only wrote the gospel of Luke, but he also wrote the sequel, Acts of the Apostles, right? And if you look in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, Peter's first apostolic sermon is a perfect summary, a perfect example of what Luke is pointing out to us here, the model of apostolic preaching. Peter's Pentecost sermon includes usage of the prophets, a quotation from Joel, and usage of the Psalms, two quotations from two David Psalms, two of David's Psalms, and they point to Christ. And then Peter preaches repentance and forgiveness of sins, or forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus. And if you look at the, the, God, or the book of Acts, and you look at every time that the apostles open their mouths to proclaim the message of Jesus, as they perform the mission of Jesus, that's the model. Repentance and forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, using the Old Testament scriptures as those who reveal Jesus Christ, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. But that's not the only thing that Theophilus needs to see and understand concerning certainty. Remember, he's a Greek. He's a Gentile. We're all Gentiles. We're all standing here. And remember, we don't have the New Testament. All we have is Genesis to Malachi. How am I supposed to know that's for me? How am I supposed to know this Jewish Messiah is my Savior, my Christ? He's been anointed for me and for my salvation. And Jesus says that the mission is to all nations. Not only does he say the mission is to all nations, but that the Old Testament declared, prophesied beforehand, that part of what must be fulfilled is that the gospel, the good news of salvation would go out not just to the Jews, but to the nations. You think of prophecies in Isaiah that talks about the servant of Yahweh who would be a light to the Gentiles. That this was always the intention. This was always God's mission, God's purpose. There was always God's divine decree 
that not only Jews would come to know Jesus as their Messiah and their Savior, but yes, you, Theophilus, would know Jesus. Yes, you, brothers and sisters in Christ, non-Jews, would come to know salvation in Jesus Christ, that the message of Christ would go out to the nations. The mission is not ethnocentric. It's not for Jews only. And I can even say here at this moment that the mission is not only for Reformed people or Dutch people, if I could go that far, or German people or whatever sort of subgroup or ethnocentric or little tiny ideological group that you want to go with. The mission is for the world. It's for people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. It's for people from every socioeconomic background, every ethnic background, every cultural difference and background. That The mission is to go out. That this Jewish savior, savior was to be the savior to the nations. And beginning at Jerusalem is what Jesus says here. The reason he says that is because over and over again, uh, the theme of the New Testament is first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. It's the way Paul works his missionary works in the book of Acts. But it's also what Jesus declares in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when he says, When power comes upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the world. So the mission goes out from Jerusalem, out into the rest of the world. In verse 48, Jesus says, You're witnesses of this thing, of these things. And what I find interesting about this phrase, witnesses, which I wrote that horribly, but you get the idea, is this. In this sense, Jesus is speaking, witnesses passive, right? You are those who have seen what has happened in my life. You are those who have been eyewitnesses of the things that have occurred in my life that I have taught, that I have done. My death and my resurrection. But here in Acts or Luke chapter 24, verse 48, that witness idea is turning on a hinge, isn't it? Right now it means to be to have observed, to have taken in the teaching of Christ and the events of his life. But in the mission of Christ, the idea of witness is going to transition from a passive meaning to one that is active, right? And this is how I would describe it. These disciples at this moment are witnesses of these things. But they will soon witness to these things. What's being said here in Luke 24 verse 48 is that the message of Christ is the mission of Christ. The message of Christ 
the message of the Old Testament, that the death and resurrection of the Messiah would be proclaimed to the nations. And belief in the death and resurrection of the Messiah would mean repentance from sin and forgiveness of sins. That the message of Christ informs the mission of Christ. That the message of Christ is what the disciples are witnesses of, but the mission of Christ is what they're going to witness to. As they bring the message of Christ to the nations, the mission of Christ will be accomplished. And what I want us to understand is what the disciples are being told here to do is something that is continuing today. The work of the mission of Christ going forward is what we prayed for when we prayed for the missionaries that this church supports. It's what we pray for when we say, Lord, give us strength and courage and boldness to be on mission for you throughout this week as your disciples. And finally, in verse 49... We're told something very important about the mission of Christ. He says, I'm going to send you what my Father has promised. The promise of the Father, although the disciples may not have understood or known what that meant at this time, is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's work is to come and apply the message of Christ to the hearts and the spirits and the souls of believers so that they can be on mission for Christ. And why I said this is the message of Christ and the mission of Christ is because at the end of Luke, when Christ ascends to sit at the right hand of the Father, that's not the end of Christ's mission. In fact, a better name for the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, would be the Acts of Christ through his apostles. Because Christ comes in his spirit and empowers the disciples to do the mission. Christ comes through his spirit And brings to mind the message of salvation for his disciples so they can bring the mission to the nations. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised. Christ is going to send the promised Holy Spirit. If there's anywhere in this text that pointed to the priestly office of Christ from the Lord's Day 12, it would be this. Christ is working, functioning as a mediator and sending the Holy Spirit. He says, our, uh, here in Lord's Day 12, it says, our only high priest who set us free by the one sacrifice of his body and who continually pleads our cause with the Father. Christ sends the Spirit from the Father, functioning as a mediator, a priestly mediator for us and sending us the empowering, the invigorating, the life-bringing, the regenerating Holy Spirit into our lives Applying the message of Christ to us so we can repent and have forgiveness of sins and so that we can bring the mission of Christ to the world. And finally, he says here, 
but stay in the city. If you know the end of the Gospel of Matthew, it's what's often called the Great Commission. The Great Commission begins with these words. Go. Well, it starts with therefore, actually. Then it says go. Go and make disciples. But Luke, he has this constant theme of waiting. And the importance here is that it's not a stay forever, but it's a stay until. Stay. Wait until. Stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. Here Luke is saying that there is so much importance to the continuing work of the Holy Spirit in bringing the message and the mission of Christ to the world that you disciples cannot leave. You must stay until you're clothed with that power. That we have a divine necessity of dependence upon Christ. That if we're going to understand the message of Christ... We not only need Christ to open up our minds to understand the scriptures, but if we're going to bring the mission of Christ, we need the spirit of Christ in us, empowering us, relying on the power of God to accomplish what Christ has called us to accomplish. Stay in the city. Until you have clothed, been clothed with power from on high. And lastly, there's this office of eternal king. The office of king. In verse 51, we're told that Christ, as he was blessing the disciples, left them and was taken up into heaven. We call this the ascension. And in the ascension, Christ's work is not completed until he ascends to sit at the right hand of the Father and he sits down on the throne. And we're told in Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 12, Christ is our eternal king who governs us by his word and spirit and who guards us and keeps us in the freedom he has won for us. This passage is a real good representation of Christ serving us in his office as a prophet, priest, and king. But that's not where the catechism ends, right? The catechism goes on to say, why do we have the name of Christ? Why do we have the name of Christ upon us? We call Jesus Christ the anointed one because he's our prophet, priest, and king. But why are we called a Christian? And it describes what is often called the office of believer. And it says we, as office of believer, function in the roles of prophet, priest, and king as well. It says, because by faith I'm a member of Christ and share in his anointing, I'm anointed to confess his name. And if I were to put that into the framework of the message and the passage that we've talked about tonight, I would say what, what it's saying there is that we have been anointed to bring the message of Christ in the mission of Christ to the nations, right? In our priestly office, we present ourselves as living sacrifices of thanks and strive with a good conscience against sin and the devil in this life, that if we are going to carry with us the message of Christ as we bring the mission of Christ to the nations, we're going to need to live as living sacrifices 
We're going to need to strive by the Spirit, by the power of the Spirit, against sin and the devil in this life. And finally, our hope, what we look forward to, is the life to come. We're called to remember and keep in mind that the same way that we saw Christ descend to sit at the right hand of the Father, we too, when this life is over, will reign with Christ over all creation for all eternity. So if I were to end this message with one thing, I would say we can have certainty, just as Theophilus was given certainty. But although we're not Jews, the Old Testament is our book because it's a Christian book, because it's about Christ. We can have certainty because the message of Christ is one that was ordained to be brought to the nations in the mission of Christ. But the salvation we have is truly what was meant to happen, what God ordained to happen, and that Jesus, that Jewish Messiah, is our Christ, our prophet, our priest, our king. Amen. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for your word in our lives. We ask, Lord, your blessing upon it. May it convict us. May it teach us. May it strengthen us. Encourage us. Help us, Lord, to live out our office of believer as we look to our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is our perfect prophet, priest, and king. Help us, Lord, to see ourselves in that long line of faithful believers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. The Old Testament patriarchs are our fathers. The matriarchs are our mothers. We belong to that heritage because of Christ because he is the seed of Abraham. And in him, all nations have been blessed. So in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.